It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. Impeachment on the table. Hearing another hearing day, day two. Uh, over the weekend, the Teamsters had their big presidential forum. Going to talk a little bit about that. Some craziness out of Ohio, along with a Supreme Court case that, well, not going to be heard, which means, hey, more chaos coming. Yay. Lots of fun. But wanted to start off with this this uh, Voice of America article that I, I came across uh, pointing out the second annual Reagan National Defense Survey. Uh, this is one of the scary things. You know, all the other stuff in D.C., all the Trump stuff aside, uh, the scary thing to me is the fact that the the Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, his army of disinformation uh, folks, are, are actually, they're succeeding. And what this second annual Reagan National Defense Survey found out, completed back in October, uh, what they found out is, 46%, 46% of our military households view Russia as an ally. Almost half of military families view Russia as an ally. And, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, you know, aren't we actually preparing all the time for, you know, conflict where the Russians are involved? Obviously, the Chinese are... are are our big threat, but the Russians are right there. Uh, now, overall in society, uh, 28% of Americans identified Russia as an ally, which is just bizarre to me. Uh, now, that's up from last year, which was 19%. So to me, what's going on here, and this is, and I was just having this conversation today with my Tea Party dentist, um, who, who was asking, you know, well, how do you see things playing out? And I said, look, I'm really, I'm really kind of nervous. I'm really kind of worried of where we go, are going as a country because we don't have substantive discussions anymore. Uh, we are in a camp on the right or the left. We're in our camps. We're in our silos. And um, whatever that silo has taken on tends to be our beliefs. And I said, look, I don't have really any more friends who you can have just a simple discussion with. You know, where you could talk about issues and you may disagree, but you walk away going, yeah, that was worth my time. Uh, what I find now is most people that I talk to, it's, it's yelling talking points and platitudes at each other. You know, my side, I believe, mine, I, you know, th that whole thing. This is, to me, one of those, one of those things where, you know, when I was a kid, everyone agreed the Russians were a threat. Uh, and, and look, I remember, the, you know, the Cold War and I remember, you know, the practicing, you know, hey, the bombs could fall. There could be a nuclear winter. There could be mad. Remember mad, mutually assured destruction if we ever got into a conflict. So now you've got 46 percent, according to this, this Reagan. And now this isn't a hippie liberal poll. This isn't a hippie liberal group. This is the Ronald Reagan National Defense Survey. Um saying 46% of military households now view Russia as an ally. Now, overall, the majority of the country, 71% uh, of, of all Americans and 53% of military households still view Russia as, the, as an enemy. 
Uh, even though there's been a you know the spike in pro-Russian sentiment, they, they're still you know there's still a good majority of us. But according to this report, Pentagon officials are freaking out because they're not quite sure. Hold on, if if we end up getting into conflict with the Russians, wait, do we end up getting a bunch of th- sympathizers? Now, according to the the VOA Voice of America article, uh, this Defense Department spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel. Carla Gleason told them that there's an effort on the part of Russia to flood the media with disinformation and sow doubt and confusion. That's exactly what we've been saying from the very beginning of the Trump presidency. The Russians did this very clearly, without question. Very simple. It's not hard. Uh, She went on to say that uh, this is not only through discordant and inflammatory dialogue, but also through fake narratives designed to elicit sympathetic views. We are actively working to expose and counter Russian disinformation wherever possible. Now, remember, we're being told by Donald Trump and the Republicans, it wasn't the Russians who meddled in the 2016 election. No, no, it was actually Ukraine. You know, the country who's being invaded by Russian separatists? You know, the the country that is trying to fight off, uh, you know, the Russians taking them over because, well, they did annex Crimea. I shouldn't say annex. That's that's such a nice word. Um, They marched in and took it. And the rest of the world said, "Mm, okay. Uh, President Obama, too, boogered this up. Okay. Uh, Do you think Trump would have done anything? No, he used to take the rest of the country, I believe. Now, what's interesting is, you know, and this has been you know, a very Trumpian thing because Trump from the beginning said, you know, well, what's, what's the big deal if we don't have a good relationship? I want to have a good relationship with Russia, even though they're meddling in our elections, even though they've got, you know, the USSR ambitions, you know, taking back, getting the old gang back together. He's still on that, that you know, we, we should have good relations. And I don't think we should be at each other's throats, but at an arm's length. Uh, There was a Pew survey back in September of 18 uh, that pointed out 35 percent of Americans wanted more cooperation with Russia. And this is, again, part of the Trump effect. And, you know, what's scary to me is, you know, here we have these influence campaigns going on. We have uh, and, and look, the military knows this. Uh, You know, you have U.S. defense and security officials who, according to this VOA report, is saying, look, Russia's been targeting U.S. military personnel since, you know, in their mind since 2017 in preparation for the 2018 election. Uh, They said, quote, the Russia's goal, they said, was not so much to swing the results of the election, but to seed U.S. military personnel with the right type of disinformation so that they would be predisposed to view Russia and its actions in a more favorable way in the future. So when they do take over the Ukraine, you know, we've already, they're, they're corrupt. They're bad. They're horrible. You know, they had Hunter Biden. So when Russia goes in and says, yeah, we're going to take it over, there's going to be people in this country who go, wow, we're going to clear up that corruption, which is insane to me. But this is, this is where we are. And, and what's interesting is you've got these officials who are saying, you know, countering this kind of disinformation campaign is incredibly difficult. And it's a nice way of saying the American people are freaking stupid. I mean, and I, and I, I hate putting it that blatantly, 
But I've seen people literally wearing things, uh, quotes that people never said. I literally have people telling me things that never happened because they saw it on a meme. It was printed on a T-shirt, so it's got to be accurate. I saw it on the Internet. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of scary. And, you know, you look at the new polling that's out. And you've got, in the Republican Party, significant changes. Now, remember, this is the party of Reagan. This is the party of national defense. This is the party of strong military. I would argue the party of fascism. Buying into the fascist argument, which is softening their views on Russia because of Trump and ultimately turning against, well, us. And the thing is, is our national defense strategy, you know, all the smart people who do the war stuff, which was just updated two years ago, puts the Chinese as our biggest adversary, our biggest threat, the Chinese. And second, the Chinese are 28%, you know, biggest, the second, Russia. And it, it got me thinking that, you remember, you know, when Mitt Romney was running in 12 and he was saying Russia's our biggest threat and everybody mocked him? This is what he was talking about. Because there was this, this stuff was beginning then. So when I look at this and I look at the disinformation campaign that's going on and I look at what the Russians are doing very successfully because they're smart. Uh, they know our divisions, they know our fault lines, and they know how to, how, to, how to just tweak those little things. And look, they've got an asset in the White House. Uh, they've got a president who is spewing their talking points. So you put that on one side, and then you, on the other side, add to this the NPR story I came across over the weekend uh, that talked about a new study out of Stanford. Uh, according to Stanford researchers who were testing kids' ability to find fake news, they evaluated these students' ability to, access, uh, to assess information in front of them, uh, the kind of sources that were in front of them, and then to describe you know, what they were finding. The report says that the, the researchers were, found the results dismaying, bleak, and a threat to democracy because these kids couldn't do it and didn't do it. And I would argue as a society, we're not doing it because we keep believing the... the <laughs> The headline, because we don't actually read the story. And I, and I go to today. Today's a big day because the uh, inspector general came out with their report on the, the Russia probe on uh, the FBI and the headline, you know, just the first headline, uh, FBI wiretap of Trump campaign uh, aid was riddled with errors. That's the headline. And you go through and you read the article, and yeah, there were errors. But what they also found is it was credible to go after this, and it was credible. It was a credible threat. They found they're there, but the headline didn't say that. The headline just said, bad FBI, bad. But when you get into the, the article, which said, look, you know, there was significant stuff going on there. There were reasons to investigate this. Now, did they cut corners? Sure. They always, they always do, and, and that should be held accountable. 
But to, as all of the right-wing groups today sent me in their emails, that it's all a hoax, it's all, it's all, you know, the FBI, you know, was against Donald Trump, and the FBI were in the pockets of Hillary Clinton and all this, which is just mind-blowingly ignorant, because just stop and think about it on a, on a simple, on a simple plan. The FBI, the, the, the organization of J. Edgar Hoover on the side of liberals, I mean, I almost can't imagine how that thought would ever get into someone's mind. I think of the FBI as, you know, these clean-cut, uh, highly conservative, highly law-and-order, iron-fisted types. But ultimately patriotic. Who saw this guy running for president and said, uh-oh, this is bad for the country. They still the ones who are able to look through the fake news. They still the ones able to go. The Russians are, are, are involved in all this. And I looked at right here where I'm at in central Pennsylvania. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania was the, the place of the first uh, little Russian troll guy named Melvin Reddick. Melvin Reddick isn't an actual human being. Melvin Reddick is an online construct, a troll. But Melvin passed on all kinds of memes and uh, you know, started all kinds of, of, of rallies and, and all kinds of stuff. He was, he was all over the place. Didn't exist other than a couple of people in a, you know, in a building in St. Petersburg who were, well, manipulating the people around him. It's, it's crazy. So I look at all of this stuff. And look, the impeachment hearings and, and all this stuff that's going on uh, is... is, is is the result of us not being able to decipher what is what is real and what isn't. And this is what the 2020 election, you know, all this other stuff aside, this is something we've got to figure out and become more fact-based human beings as opposed to, oh, I saw it on a T-shirt, got to be true. This election is the most important in our country's history. And we've got to get it right. Look, if you're a Trump supporter and you've got a reason why, bless you. Good for you. But at least it, let it be an, an actual reason, not something that a Russian troll planted in your head. And I know nobody told me how to vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you keep believing that. Again, our arrogance, our bravado, exactly what they use against us. Uh, anyway, lots to get to to talk about today. Uh, when we come back, the, the Teamsters had their presidential forum in Iowa. We're going to get Jesse Case to come talk with the Secretary Treasurer of Teamsters Local uh, 238 to give us some thoughts on the day's events and you know, maybe where the IBT goes uh, forward. Let's take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2008. That was the day UE Local 1110 members at Republic Windows in Chicago began a five-day occupation to protest the imminent closure of their plant. A month earlier, Republic workers witnessed management moving machinery out of the factory. They began monitoring where the machinery was going and soon learned it was headed for a new non-union plant in Iowa. 
they planned a possible plant occupation. By December 2nd, management announced the plant was closing in just three days. Republic Windows owner Richard Gelman blamed Bank of America for refusing to extend credit just as the federal government had bailed out the banks in a $700 billion deal. Workers learned they would receive no severance or vacation pay despite WARN Act mandates. The next day, they rallied out in front of Bank of America chanting, You got bailed out, we got sold out. Workers were determined to occupy the plant that Friday when they went to pick up their last paychecks. Police refused to remove the sit-downers and the occupation quickly made national news. Local labor leaders and trade unionists, activists and politicians all visited strikers and lent their support. Journalist Carrie Leiterson recounts the events in her book Revolt on Goose Island, noting the donations of food, blankets, pillows, sleeping bags and other necessities that poured into the factory. Protests of Bank of America spread across the country. By the following Wednesday, workers learned that though they could not keep their plant open, they would at least win severance and vacation pay. In 2012, some of those workers reopened that plant under the name New Era Windows as a worker-run cooperative. They specialize in energy-efficient vinyl windows. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, over the weekend, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters held their presidential forum out in Iowa. You had Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar show up. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was there. You had Senator Cory Booker, uh, billionaire Tom Steyer. Uh, Joe Biden and uh, obviously Bernie Sanders and and I'll tell you you know they they all are, are preferable uh, in my view to what we have in the White House right now, especially when you look at what this administration has done uh, and all of the assaults on labor that we've seen over the last couple of years. So for me, uh, any of them at this point uh, would be an improvement. But you know, sat- it was an opportunity Saturday to hear you know how are they going to pick up the ball and move the cause of working people forward. Uh, and I was happy to see it, and it's about time uh, that Labor really put their foot down and say, look, what are you going to do to help working people in this country? And here to give us a thought of what happened on Saturday, I've asked Jesse Case to come talk with us. Jesse is the Secretary-Treasurer of Teamsters Local 238 out in the great state of Iowa. Jesse, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me back. So uh, give me a sense of you know what was what was the event like. I mean, there were several hundred people crammed into this room uh, as the candidates you know kind of gave their – uh, what they do for labor speech. Well, yeah, we had over 700 Teamsters from coast to coast coming to Iowa from Los Angeles and Chicago and New England. And uh, it was a beautiful venue, Vets Memorial Coliseum, uh, on, on the 78th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah, the reason we did it is because we need an alternative to this train wreck coming out of Washington, D.C. And a lot of the forums and, and debates we've seen so far uh, have kind of looked the same. And we wanted to have a, a forum and a venue that, that deals with, with the issues of working people. So that's what we put together. No, and, and look, there. I've been saying for a while that, you know, we've got to have candidates who are not just going to talk the talk, but walk the walk. And one of the things I thought that, to me, one of the, the most important moments was Bernie Sanders saying, look, this is what I do. This is what I've always done. And I love the shot that he threw in there. He goes, I've probably walked more picket lines than everybody in the field combined. 
Yeah, I mean, that's right. And, and you know, the Teamsters have laid out criteria uh, as a precursor to any endorsement, and it, it includes walking the pick line or, or showing up at, at, at uh, union events, as well as a survey and, and a video. So they're on the record on, on where they stand on these issues. And, they, and really the issues that we were focusing on were retirement security, the right to organize a union, and fair trade deals. And not, you don't hear any of the other you know, forums or debates talking about these issues. And, and these are the issues that we know are important to our members. We did a nationwide survey, and, and uh, these are the issues that are going to decide the 2020 election. You know, without retirement security, without uh, fixing the multi-employer pension problem we have in this country where we can let people retire with dignity, uh, this country, the economy is just not going to work in the long run. Without the right to organize a union, without fixing the current laws where there's no chief when employers uh, violate the National Labor Relations Act, the economy is not going to run well in the long run. And without fair trade deals, where we've got uh, protection for you know, labor protections and, and language that keeps jobs in America, the economy is doomed for failure in the long run. So these are the three issues that we know are important, not only to Teamsters, but to the economy of this country in the future. Right. You know, let's talk about the, the first one, pension security. You know, because I talk to a lot of my Teamster brothers and sisters, and this is front and foremost on their mind because, look, uh, there are a couple of funds that are struggling right now. I mean, I look at the central states uh, that are having some problems. I look at the mine workers who are having a lot of problems. Um, they're neat. We bail out these big banks all the time. Anytime Wall Street gets themselves into trouble, uh, you've got politicians running with blank checks. But yet in this moment where uh, there's a question of whether we're going to pay out and retirees are going to get what they paid for, uh, it seems to be something that's been going on for, this is going back about 10 years now that we've been fighting to shore up these, these funds. Uh, and yet nothing's gotten done for working people. Well, I think that's because if you follow follow the money there's a, a clear story to tell here you know banks you're absolutely right they'll you know they're too big to fail they'll get a bailout anytime they need the auto industry gets a bailout anytime they need wall street gets bailed out anytime they need but if you have hundreds of thousands or millions of middle income middle class people whose retirements are going to collapse uh, you know the government's nowhere to be found even though uh, they're supposed to be a government of the people and for the people. And it, and it, this pension reform that we're talking about is not a bailout like Wall Street got or like the banking industry got. We're talking about a low-interest loan through Treasury that's guaranteed by bonds. And, it, and it's, uh, it, you know, there, there's over a trillion dollars in, in low-interest loans like this uh, floating around in the economy today in the private sector. But for some reason, when it comes to working people, uh, it's like pulling teeth to get Congress to take action. But we think... You know, there is some movement. We've gotten it out of the House of Representatives. We're, we're starting to see some movement in the Senate, and we're confident that, that in the end we'll get it done. Well, let's hope that happens. But here's the thing. Even if you do get the this through, the Butch Lewis Act pushed through, and there is some help on the short term, the long-term problem still exists that uh, there aren't as many members as there were. Uh, there aren't as many members working as they're going to be retired. And at some point, that that organizing thing has got to come back around. And it and for me, it's the it's 70 years of ossificated labor law. It's it's all of the the horrible policies, not just of this administration, but of of administrations past. You know, going back to Reagan, going back to Nixon. I mean, there there are things that have to be fixed. And and I think I think one of the things that I think is more even as important as the pensions is what are we going to do to get people to be able to join and form unions again. Because, look, I've seen the polling as you have. You know, more than 60% of workers say that they'd join a union tomorrow if they could. 
Well, I think we have to redefine the playing field here. And, it, you know, it, they've made it nearly impossible for workers to form a union. They've, they've told us and they've trained us, you know, if you, if you sign a, an interest card, if you uh, don't get fired, if you alienate your employer, if you get an election, if you win that election, if you get a first contract, then you get to join a union. And they put up so many hoops and obstacles to jump through, they, it's almost impossible. And what we need to do is go back to where we were 100 years ago, before there were laws, because they're really trying to legislate unions out of existence right now. But, you know, we know something that they have forgotten, or maybe they never knew, which is that you cannot legislate a movement uh, out of existence. Uh, it just doesn't work. You know, so if you look at where we were 100 years ago, uh, before there were good labor laws, things looked very similar to where they are today. Immigrant, immigration levels were very similar to today's. Uh, the difference between you know, worker pay and robber barons is very close to where it is today. The stock market, very close to where it is today comparatively. So it, the conditions are very favorable. And if you go back to that period, that was the period that, uh, you know, was right before the largest growth in the uh, history of the American labor movement. So I think we're, I think we're optimistic. You're seeing more people organize. You're seeing more people uh, uh, that are militant about about organizing. And I think that we're going to see a, a renaissance in, in unions. I hope so. Now, it's one of the things I've been calling for for the last several years. Look, it's that militancy that we have to have. And, you know, as, as a friend of the, our friend of the show, uh, Sarah Nelson always says, you know, there are no illegal strikes. They're just unsuccessful ones. And, and you're, you, you can legislate them out of existence. But at the end of the day, uh, it's still about workers having the ability to fold their arms and march their feet. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and we have to, you know, quit asking their permission to organize. You know, we don't need to be certified by the labor, by the federal government to fight for workers' rights. And, you know, in Iowa, we formed the Teamsters Community Action Network, Team Can. It's the social justice arm. Because 100 years ago, we were fighting in the streets just as much as we were fighting in the workplace. And we will always fight in the workplace. That's our core mission, bargaining contracts, servicing our members. But we also have to fight in the street. And uh, we have to do social justice organizing in the neighborhood. You know, Team, Team Can, first thing we did was we trained 400 brand-new activists on basic organizing techniques. Some of those activists ran, you know, went on to run for office themselves or organize campaigns in their community. We formed an employee-owned temp agency that pays $15 an hour because it's very hard to, to organize temp workers. Uh, we're currently coordinating a network of activists in manufactured home communities who are fighting uh, predatory uh, business, you know, uh, housing practices, uh, and, and fighting to, to to maintain affordable housing in our in our neighborhoods, and it, and so fighting in the streets and and fight and organizing in our neighborhood is just as important as organizing in the workplace. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. You know, returning the union hall to the to the community and uh, being in the center of the part of the community. You're right. You listen to the Rick Smith Show. We're with Jesse Casey, the Secretary of Treasurer of Teamsters Local 238 out in Iowa. We're talking about the presidential forum the IBT held uh, over the weekend. So, what was the general sense in the room? I mean, did you did did you guys take a poll at the end? What's the general sense of of where those folks? Uh, we're kind of like a focus group. Uh, we're leaning with the six candidates. Uh, it, you know, it's very interesting that the, the the group seemed to you know be pretty split uh, over all the candidates. And um, you know, we're we're not making an endorsement until you know, we get closer to to uh, you know after the Iowa caucuses and maybe closer to the convention. But you know, we the important thing is that Teamsters uh, participate in the process. That they participate in their caucuses. They participate in their 
in their primaries. And, you know, we've done a great job of coordinating with uh, Teamsters in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada to really bird dog these candidates. We, you know, we follow them around the state and, and make sure that we're educating them on Teamster issues and asking them questions uh, and holding them accountable uh, state by state in a coordinated effort. So there's no getting away from us. And the Teamsters, 1.4 million members were everywhere. And, and uh, we had six great candidates uh, the, the audience, you know, there are mem- factions of the audience that liked every single one of them, and that's because that every single one of them would be better than that train wreck that's currently in the White House. Yeah, I had one of my, because uh, obviously, uh, being a Teamster, you know that there are a number of uh, Teamsters who are Trump supporters, and I, I know a bunch of them. Uh, they were curious if, if Donald Trump was invited to this forum. We've, we've uh, in- invited uh, Trump and all the candidates to participate in, in our process. Not every candidate was invited to this forum, but the criteria we used were, you know, front runners and, and people who are represented by the Teamsters Union. And then a couple of them, as you know, dropped out in the last couple of weeks. They're, they folded their, their campaigns, and we added a couple more. But if Donald Trump wants to come and talk to a group of Teamsters, he can follow the same process as the other candidates. Right. Uh, but, but the reason he hasn't filled out the survey, or maybe we could ask, Somebody should ask him that. The reality is he didn't fill out the survey. If you don't fill out the survey on our issues, you don't get to participate in our forums. Excellent if you don't point. follow the process, you don't get to participate in the forum. So he may be in the White House, but he's not going to get treated any differently than anybody else. And the, and the only way he would get maybe treated uh, more fairly is if he started telling the truth. There, there is that. So let me ask you this, because, you know, there are, like I said, there are at least the narrative has been that Trump won because union members went from Hillary to Donald Trump. Uh, and there's a lot of people saying we've got to get them to go back the other way. Um, this administration has really honestly been horrible, uh, especially for organized labor. You look at the Janus decision. There's some NLRB stuff that's really bad. The deregulation is horrible. There's a lot of stuff here. Uh, how do you make the argument to those members who who you know did make the switch for Trump because Trump was talking about you know dealing with the the bad trade agreements and revitalizing revitalizing manufacturing even though he's boogered those up how do you make that argument back to them Well I think you know there are a couple factors that were playing in 2016 one is that people were duped you know Donald Trump is a, is a great uh, uh, you know you know liar he he misled people he he says not what he thinks, but what he thinks people want to hear. So there, there was a certain aspect of people wanting to change, and Trump uh, offered himself as an alternative. But it was, you know, it, it, was, it was disguised in a, in a bunch of lies. The other thing is, in 2016, in the past, frankly, the Democrats have not done a great job of addressing labor's issues, right. and you know, they, they uh, frankly ignored uh, labor a lot in the past, and, and they keep losing elections. And I think this cycle, they're starting to wake up a little bit and say, you know what, if we're going to ask labor to save our party once again, maybe we should actually pay attention to what their issues are, because it's very hard for us to mobilize our members uh, for people like Hillary Clinton when Hillary Clinton doesn't um, talk about our issues. And that's just an example, uh, not to pick her out totally, but you know, in, in the past, uh, if you don't talk about labor issues and then you come to us and ask us to turn out our members to vote for you, you know, you, what, are you, what are we supposed to tell them? Uh, so I think, I think Democrats are evolving uh, in the right direction to address, uh, address labor's issues. And that's why you saw such a successful forum this weekend is because it was a forum specifically on labor's issues. And we had great participation from the candidates and a, and a fired-up crowd at the end. 
Uh, and at the end of it, the hope is no matter who you endorse, we hold accountable. Uh, because, look, I voted for Bill Clinton for the reason that he said he was going to uh, pass strike replacement. I voted for Barack Obama because he told me twice, looked me in the eye, shook my hand twice, and said we were going to get the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, none of that got done. So the question then becomes, how do we, after this process, make sure that they're held accountable? Yeah, and if and if you see what happens when we don't hold people are accountable or when there's no accountability going into the process, you know, it, it, in Iowa, all you have to do is look what happened when the Republicans took over the Senate. After 40 years, they got a trifecta of the of the governor's office, the House, and the Senate, and they immediately pivoted to creating barriers to to re, you know for workers' comp, and they cut funding for community colleges and universities. They took away access to cancer screenings and preventative health services, and they cut funding for mental health institutions, and they cut funding for investigations of child abuse and elderly abuse, and they took away collective bargaining rights for 180,000 public sector workers, and they reduced the minimum wage for 65,000 Iowans, and it goes on and on and on and on. And it's because there was no accountability. Not a single person ran uh, in that cycle uh, on any of those topics, but as soon as they got elected, uh, they they you know that these are the things they did yeah. when they never campaigned. But now it, it's time to you know call it for what it is. It was just we got duped, voters got duped, and people are starting to feel the effects of these bad laws that went into a place. And that and I think the accountability is going to come in 2020. And that is the hope. Uh, but Jesse, I appreciate you taking time. The forum was fantastic. Uh, I hope you guys will do another one between now and uh, and and in the beginning of the the caucuses and all of that, because uh, I think this is it's so important to have these issues out in front of people uh, so that they can hear what the candidates have to say. But I appreciate the time. And, and just to, to, in closing, I want to say one more thing, Rick, and that and that's I, I you know I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one campaign in Iowa, and that's the campaign of uh, Congressman Steve King, and that and that guy is a national embarrassment. Uh, who needs to go. And the Teamsters are going to help take him out. Uh, J.D. Schulten is a great candidate uh, that's going to that's gonna beat Steve King next year. And, uh, you know, for too long, Steve King has been embarrassing the state. And I want to just assure people that a year from now, we won't have to worry about Steve King. Good. Uh, uh, you know, I used to look at him as just a chew toy, someone to, to, put, to put prop up as uh, the worst of the Republican Party. But sadly, the Republican Party has caught up to him. Uh, so it'd be nice to see him out and a bunch of others come November. Uh, but, Jesse, good, keep up the good work, and I look forward to talking to you again. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, seriously, you should check out the, the presidential forum. It was, it was really very good. Uh, because, look, they stuck to, to working class issues. That's what I think is important. Uh, let's take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. Listen to The Rick Smith Show. Remembering that united we bargain, divided we beg. Rick Smith. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1953. That was the day that Ralph Cordiner, president of General Electric, issued his Cordiner Doctrine. It was the height of McCarthyism and the second Red Scare. The House Un-American Activities Committee persisted in its witch hunting of trade unionists, labor militants, and alleged communists. It targeted many of the unions purged from the CIO in 1949. 
The United Electrical Workers was one of those unions. The UE had organized the electrical manufacturing industry, including General Electric. Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy and HUAC each began investigating UE Local 301 at the General Electric plant in Schenectady, New York. GE didn't like the militancy of the UE or the bad publicity McCarthy generated about the company harboring subversives. So President Cordiner issued a memo which stated that any employee called before a Senate or legislative committee hearing who invoked the Fifth Amendment in response to inquiries regarding alleged communist ties shall be terminated. When McCarthy came to Albany, New York to hold hearings on alleged subversive activities three months later, hundreds of UE members packed the room, booing and jeering the senator and cheering the defendants. One African-American worker demanded, why don't you investigate subversion by GE of the Jim Crow system, of the profits taken from the sweat of my people? McCarthy abruptly ended the hearings, but 28 UE members would be fired at General Electric. Other electrical manufacturers like Westinghouse soon followed suit. It was a devastating blow to the union and to the fired members who had helped build the UE from the ground up. But the union persevered and remains a powerful representative force for workers in the industry today. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. You know, I'll tell you, I'm, uh, I, you know, the, the presidential forum the Teamsters had over the weekend is, you know, really, really put into perspective for me. I, uh, it is the moment that I decided that Bernie Sanders was the guy that I want to support uh, in the primaries. I, you know, I was on the fence. There are, there are a couple of people that I really liked. I like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, Sanders, uh, his statement that, you know, look, I've always been on the picket line. I've always uh, stood up for working people. I've always done this. It's who I am. And the reality, that there's no question that he's right. He's walked more picket lines than, than all of the field combined. No question about that. And the fact that, you know, he also brought up the idea of ending at-will employment, which to me is one of those things that I've been saying for, you know, for, you know, 15 years I've been doing this program. Uh, it's one of those things that union members don't even think about because, well, they're not at will. They've got a contract. And and it's it's something that I don't think most union members understand how, uh, maybe they do. Uh, maybe I'm being, being you know, I'm overgeneralizing. Uh, but I don't think they realize, you know, how, how important that is. You know, in the workplace of knowing that you can't be fired for for no reason whatsoever, or for some nonsensical reason. And you get people, you know, and I get this from people all the time. Well, you know, you can't fire union members. Yeah, you can. If they mess up, if they screw up, and you go through, you know, that thing that we like to believe in in this country called due process, if you follow the rules and and you, you document, you can fire union members. But absolutely, it happens all the time. But it has to be for cause. There has to be a reason. It isn't just, you know what, I don't like you today. Or, you know what, you wore a blue shirt. Or in the case, there was a case, I think it was Florida, uh, where a bunch of office workers wore an orange shirt to show solidarity with each other or to be happy or whatever the hell it was. They fired them all. Fired all of them. And and this is one of those moments where, you know, I, I thought of at the time, it, you know, they all worked in a law office. All one of them had to say is, well, we were organizing a union and they'd had some protection. 
concerted concerted activity. Um, but when Sanders talks like this, you know, most of, I don't think most of the workforce understands, you know, just how bad at-will employment is. And you know, I was reading an article by I think it was one of the you know, one of these these right-wing think tank you know guys who it's one of those things where you go I never really thought I would find somebody to try and defend at-will employment, let alone call it an American norm. But we did find one, uh, a guy from the Cato Institute uh, who is saying, look, if we do what Bernie Sanders wants, it's going to be horrible. Employers are never going to hire anybody. And I go, but hold on a second. Um, you know, I know a lot of people where at-will employment is not allowed. They have union contracts. And oddly enough, they still hire people. And it's, it's one of these things that, you know, and now the guy says, you know, Sanders' goals are, you know, laudable. You know, you know we should give him credit for at least thinking, nice pat on the head. Uh, but they're misguided. You know, misguided that you should be able to have some say and some voice on the job. Misguided that you should have some security on the job. And, oh, hey, misguided in that maybe you should share in some of those profits. Misguided. No one would ever hire anyone again, which is, which is laughable on its face. But it gets, it gets ink all over the place. Uh, and their argument is, is that, you know, basically if you end the at-will at employment, uh, there's going to be a disincentive for employers to hire people and we're going to all go to these gig employees. And this is where you go, yeah, that's why you change the laws. That's why you have a comprehensive labor law reform uh, that you know, does away with at-will employment, does away with gig, you know, the independent contractor being misclassified, that does away with a lot of the things that corporate America has, has constructed. Um, just a thought. And it's one of these moments where, you know, in talking with union members who have these protections, and, and I argue take them for granted, should be going, you know, how do we make sure that everyone gets this? How do we make sure that we we, we tell people what, what this is about? You know, I, I'm a believer in, you know, joining a union, being a member of a union is is an incredible thing for your for your sanity, for your security. Uh, you're going to get, you know, not fired tomorrow for no reason. Uh, you're going to probably get really good health care. You're probably going to get a, some bit of a pension. You're going to get safer working conditions because we, we find study after study shows, you know, non-union workplaces much more dangerous. Why? Because you have these people working there who are afraid to say anything. Why? Because they're at will. What does that mean? That means you open your mouth, you're out the door. So what you have in these, these fiefdoms where the boss being the king and all the peasants having to do the work, they're terrified of speaking out because they know, speak out, there's the door. So they put up with the dangerous working conditions, the, the lower wages, uh, the more expensive health care, if any at all, uh, crummy 401k, if anything at all. So for me, the idea that Sanders is going to go, you know what, we're going to, we're going to move forward and we're going to do away with some of these, these horrible things is a good thing. It really is. It's a good thing. Giving people the ability to organize is a good thing. Why? Because it's going to raise the standard of living for folks. And we've seen this. 
We've lived this. My grandparents' generation built the most prosperous working class in the history of civilization. And you have a Republican Party and some conservative Democrats over the last 50 years who have torn torn that to shreds. Because we're right now back where my grandparents started off as children with mass inequality, with a handful controlling the wealth that, you know, unimaginable kind of wealth. And you got somebody like Mike Bloomberg. And this is one of those things where you go, Mike, I think you really need to take a, take a second and, and understand the crowd because Mike Bloomberg's running for president. Um, and he's, he's kind of chafed by Warren and Sanders, uh, you know, pointing out that billionaires are, are taking more than their share and that they're hoarding and that they're, they're not paying their share in taxes and that the giant tax bill that, that Trump, the only accomplishment of this administration, actually benefited the billionaires, benefited billionaires over the rest of us. Well, Bloomberg's a little ticked about that. And Bloomberg evidently was, was being interviewed uh, by this Gail King. And he said, it's my fault. It's not my fault that they didn't have the good sense to become billionaires. Talking about Warren and Sanders. It's not my fault that they didn't have the good sense to become bill- a billionaire like me. Uh, he says, they've criticized me. Uh, ask, ask them what they're doing. Uh, why didn't they do that? They had the chance to go out and make a lot of money. Uh, he says, I'm doing the same thing that they're doing, except I'm using my own money. And he, he kind of tone deaf and doesn't quite understand that that's exactly what most of us don't want. We don't want kings. There was an article over the weekend that pointed out that Elizabeth Warren made $2 million in her legal in her legal years of arguing cases. What the headline didn't read, and again, going back to what I said at the beginning, that we read the headlines, maybe the first couple of lines, but don't actually read the rest of the article. What, what the rest of the article says is that was over 20 years. So the fact that she made $2 million over 20 years, I don't know that that's a, I don't know that's a bad thing. I think that's a pretty good living, one that most of us should aspire, and one that a lot of us probably have. So to have someone like Bloomberg, you know, say, wow, they could have been a billionaire like me. Not everybody wants to be a billionaire. But you should be able to eat. You should be able to have, you know, clothing on your kid's back, a roof over their head, food on the table. And you should be able to do that through your work. And this is one of those moments where, you know, you look at this and you just go, "Um, Bloomberg's way out of touch, (laughs) really way out of touch. And I'm surprised why he wasn't at the Teamsters Forum. Tom Steyer was there. Uh, and in fact, I liked one of, the, one of the things Steyer had to say. He said, look, you know, one of the, my first organizing has been with organized labor. And my last will probably be with organized labor. You know, here's, a, here's one of the billionaires saying, look, you know, I'm, I get it. Now, I'm a little, I'm not, I don't want him to be president. But at least he, he you know, he's somewhere near the page. So it's just one of those things that that's got my attention, and and I guess this week I'm I'm more focused on since the Teamsters Forum, I'm more focused on on union members not voting against their own best interests, because I look at what this administration has done. You look at the fact that you know their Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, overturned 40 years of decided law. And, and made the entire country a right-to-work country for public sector workers in the Janus case. 
you look at the fact that the NLRB has made numerous changes uh, to how they they move cases forward and 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 numerous changes on on how the future of negotiating contracts and things will be done. And there's chaos coming uh, in the world of organized labor because of the changes they've made. And it's not for the better. It's for the much worse, and it's going to get much uglier for union members in a second term of Trump. So when I see my friends who are handing out Teamsters for Trump shirts, scab shirts, I may add, um, you know, I, I got to share this. Um, so I go to work, and there's a guy handing out you know, Teamsters for Trump shirts. And, you know, I don't care because, you know, you'd be a knucklehead if you have to. Um, and uh, whatever, do what you got to do. And, and, and I wasn't going to say anything because I, I rarely do. Until I actually saw the shirt. Now, look, I'm a union guy. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm not shy about that. Um, I do look for the union label. I am a, an American-made guy. I think, you know, you buy things uh, made here in the country. But here, here's this printed on this T-shirt, Teamsters for Trump, uh, on a shirt made in Haiti. So not even made in the U.S., let alone by union labor. And without a union bug. And I go, but you're a union person. You know, shouldn't you have at least one of the three at least be made in the U.S. if you're not going to have it union printed? Because for those who don't know, the union bug is that little little insignia down at the bottom uh, of, of, of the shirt or any printed material uh, that has, you know, the union that printed it and the local number. So you know that it was done by union labor. Uh, it is. You go back to the 1970s. You know, look for the union label. There it is. It's the little bug down there. It's called the union bug. So I'm looking for the union bug, no union bug. And look, I don't think a union printer would print uh, on a, a, a T-shirt made overseas anyway. So I know you've got the trifecta of, of anti-union nonsense. You've got not made in the U.S., not made by union labor, and not printed by union labor. So why would you slap a union name on that? So when I call it a scab shirt, that's what it is. It doesn't matter to me what's on it. It's mattered that it matters to me that you're handing this off as a union item with a union's name on it and and it's against everything that unions stand for. That's the part that grabbed me. So when I I asked the guy how much the scab shirts for Trump cost, he goes off on this this screaming rant about liberal BS. And I, I didn't even get the, he didn't even tell me how much they were. So I'm like, you know, I guess just asking a question is not liberal. And I'm okay with that because I ask a lot of questions. Uh, and then he got into his, his big, you know, souped up truck and sped off like he was really angry, which again, you know, gave me a chuckle. But it made me think that, you know, there are so many people out there who, especially in this election cycle, are voting against their own best interest for whatever the reason is. I don't know if, if he's a homophobe. I don't know if he's a racist. I don't know if he's just plain stupid. I don't know. Because you can't engage in a conversation of, hey, you know, what made you do this? What made you put the flag in the ground and say, yep, I'm supporting the guy who is seriously going to harm my employment, who is, going, who is doing everything they can possibly do to ensure that I don't get a raise. Now, understand, this guy and, and others like them will be the first ones to complain next contract when they don't get a raise or the raise is, isn't significant or the health care benefits don't get better. Maybe they get a little worse or you have to give something up. They're going to be the first ones to whine and you go, but hold on. 
you're the nitwit who voted for the guy who who weakened the union's ability to fight for those better wages, hours, and conditions. And now you're going to turn around and now you're going to say something? Now you're going to complain? And this is, again, the problem that I have with a lot of, of the knee-jerk stuff that's going on where you can't actually have a conversation. Because if I were able to talk to this person, I'd say, look, do you know what this administration has done? Set Janus aside. Set the Janus decision at the Supreme Court aside that created right to work for the entire country for public sector workers. Never mind that. Let's let's even let that go. The fact that the NLRB is changing uh, a ma- massive change on how decertification is done in this country should alarm every union member who is under a contract. Under the old rules, if a company believed that the union didn't enjoy majority support, there had to be a decertification petition circulated. You had to get 30% of the people to sign on to it to trigger an election. That's how it used to be. Now all that has to happen is the employer, and this is the regulatory change that the administration has made through the NLRB, now all they have to do is claim, we don't think the union has majority support. They have to make that claim 90 days before the expiration of a contract, and the union has 45 days to schedule a new election without actually knowing what the employees want. So what does this mean? This means that the unions are going to spend most of their time, energy, and resource continually running organizing campaigns against companies with very deep pockets. And even if the companies lose the election, they win by weakening the union's ability to fight and enforce those contracts. This is a really bad thing. This is horrible for union members, and it's bad for all workers, because understand, when you have a higher union density, you generally have a higher wage, and it pulls everybody up, even the people who aren't anywhere near being a union member. And this is what's happened over the last 40 years. As union density has dropped, wages have stagnated, and in many industries, actually gone down. This isn't rocket scientists. You don't need to be a genius to figure it out. This is pretty simple stuff. If you don't have the power, you don't have the, the, the manpower or woman power, you don't have the ability to demand better, you don't get better. Sorry, there aren't many benevolent employers who just bestow wonderful things upon you. You have to fight for them. And we're at a time right now where this administration... Donald Trump and the Republican wish machine, uh, they are getting everything that they wanted. That All these think tanks have been dreaming up. The American Legislative Exchange Council has been trying to ram through, and they're doing it through executive order. They're doing it through regulatory changes and deregulation, you know, because of those job-killing regulations that every knuckle-headed conservative loves to, to spew out but yet can't, can't point to one to me. So again, you go back and you go, what has this administration done for working people? Did you get any of the tax cut? No. In fact, being in the trucking industry, truck drivers really got screwed. Because as my conversation with my Tea Party dentist today went, um, I said, look, the only thing the, the Trump administration has gotten passed legislatively through uh, is that, that, that tax heist, um, where they handed away almost $2 trillion to the 1% of this country. Uh, most of us didn't get anything. And he said, my, my Tea Party dentist said, well, you know, small businesses seem to like it. And I said, really? I go, well, how much are you paying more in taxes? He goes, well, yeah, I'm, I'm paying higher taxes because of it. But, but it's simpler. 
And I'm going, hold on. So if Obama would have raised your taxes and made it simpler, you'd have been okay with it. And he, he thought, and he said, well, no. And this is one of those moments where you go, hmm. So you're paying more and not complaining, but you would have before. Because, again, I've yet to find anybody. I really want to. Please, somebody, if you did better, if you you are paying less taxes and you're a working person, I want to know it. Because the majority of us are not. And, again, back to the truck drivers. One of the things that the Trump tax, the Trump tax plan did is it eliminated the ability of union members to deduct their union dues, which you'd always been able to do. So you're paying higher taxes because of that. Uh, it, it eliminated your ability to deduct work work related stuff like gloves and, and uh, shirts and jeans and reflective gear and you know all the safety stuff that you need. All that's done. Uh, it, it's done away with deductions that you would take on the road. Uh, again, you know, huge amounts of money being lost, thousands of dollars, and yet. We don't hear the where the where the Tea Party people screaming about this. Most most working people are paying higher higher taxes. But yet the folks with the uh, the scab shirts for Trump are just all because they're 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 ticking off a liberal. And I said, you're not ticking me off. You're the one who's go- you're losing. And I used to not care that that dumb people did dumb things that that were that did irreparable irreparable harm to themselves until I realized that by allowing stupid to do dumb stuff that harms him ultimately harms me and everybody else. And that's why I'm passionate about bringing up the fact that you've got these knuckleheads uh, who do this stuff if for no other reason than to get attention. Don't know if they were dropped in their head at birth or what, but uh, it's all about getting attention. Well, he's got my attention now. Uh, scab shirts for Trump have my attention. And it's it's angering to no end. Because again, it's 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 picking, it's it's doing it's doing us harm, it's tearing us apart. And that's the one thing that that Trump and ultimately the, the Russian troll farms and, and Putin and the rest of them want. They want a divided America. They want a country that it's, it's at each other's throat. They want a country that's not talking about issues and how to move us forward and make life better. They want us at each other's throat, denying and dividing each other. And they're winning. The truth of the matter is, they're winning. Because they're doing a masterful job of it. So the question becomes, how do we as a country how do we as a working class, how do we ensure that we don't let them win? How do we turn back the propaganda? How do we at every turn when you see the person forwarding the meme or the chain email or, or any of that stuff, how do you push back? Because at some point it has to happen, doesn't it? Truth, we like to believe, prevails, right? We like to believe that truth will, will overtake misinformation. Truth will overtake dishonesty. We like to believe that, right? To me, that's what this You, you want to talk about this being an important election? This is an important election because truth matters. 
that simple. Love to hear your thoughts. You can email me, rick at com. Remembering that united we bargain, divided we beg. Rick Smith. expect that corporate billionaires and coke-funded Republican right-wingers would be howl-at-the-moon opponents of a wealth tax, Medicare for all, and other big progressive ideas to help improve the circumstances of America's workaday majority. But Democrats? Unfortunately, yes. Not grassroots Dems, but a gaggle of don't-rock-the-corporate-boat fraidy-cat Democrats. These naysayers are the party's old-line Pauls, lobbyists, and other insider elites who are now screeching that Democratic candidates must back off those big proposals. Why? Because, they squawk, being so bold, so progressive, so, well, so democratic, will scare voters. As one meekly put it, when you say Medicare for all, it's a risk. It makes people afraid. Excuse me, but in my speeches and writings, I say Medicare for all a lot. And far from cowering, people stand up and cheer. In fact, the New York Times has just reported that 81% of Democrats and two-thirds of independents support Medicare for all. Even apple pie doesn't score that high. It's simply a lie that the people are afraid of the idea of everyone getting public finance health care. So who really fears it? Three special interest groups, insurance company profiteers, big pharma price gougers, and the political insiders who are hooked on funding from these corporations. This is Jim Hightower saying, not only is it a pusillanimous fabrication to claim that the people oppose any changes stronger than corporate minimalism, it's also political folly. If the Democratic Party won't stand up for the transformative structural changes that America's middle and low-income majority clearly wants and needs, why would those people stand up for Democrats? As the 2016 presidential election taught us, a whole lot of the working-class Democrats the party counts on won't. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, uh, Donald Trump again, you know, every day there's something where you go, wow, what an embarrassment. I mean, probably the biggest one. I mean, there's there's a bunch of things that he said over the years that are just ridiculous. But that one, you know, not too, I think it was last week where they were celebrating uh, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. And he took credit for him being able to to get it done. And he didn't know why, you know, they, they couldn't do it any, any sooner and why any other administration didn't do it. I don't think anybody explained to him that, you know, 100 years is 100 years. And you can't shorten that. So having a 100-year event at 98 years is probably not possible. But, hey, I know that's well above his pay grade. Uh, I, I found this most recent thing to be just just kind of, wow. Uh, he's speaking to members of the Israeli-American Council, uh, whom he described as brutal killers and not nice people. That's a nice way to start off a speech. You're all brutal killers and none of you are nice. Uh, but you're going to vote for me because Elizabeth Warren's going to take all your money. And I'm going, wait a second. <laughs> that sounds 
really anti-Semitic. Um, but, you know, I, I guess it is what, well, it is what Donald Trump does. Here to share some thoughts on on the, the Trump spiel and also the 2020 election. I've asked our good friend Helene Olin to come talk with us. Helene is one of my favorite opinion columnists over at the Washington Post. Helene, thanks for taking time for us. Oh, thank you for having me on. So is is that is that anti-Semitic? Is is it is it is it okay to talk about Jews and money in, in a way that they're brutal killers and not nice people? Is that okay or no? Uh, it's fairly staggering, but this is far from a first offense by Donald Trump. I, I mean, he's clearly got his issues here. It's that weird you know, anti-Semitism where it doesn't come off as quite "I hate you and I want you dead." But it's that anti-Semitism where it's, well, I think you all really like money. Like, <laughs> and you're like, huh? <laughs> My favorite comedian, a guy, uh, Mark Marin was his name. Uh, he did a stand-up bit where he said, you know, I'm Jewish and we have all the money. In fact, we go in our synagogues and they're just big rooms of money that we just roll around in the money. And it, when he said that, you know, I, I immediately went to Marin and I'm going, yeah, I mean, that's what Trump thinks. Absolutely. I wish somebody would tip me off to this great secret because I could use that. It's, so if if somebody knows where like the secret Jewish money is hidden, send it my way. I mean, uh, you know, you can, you know, you can, you, you can, you know, get me on signal. I mean, you don't have to tell anybody. It's okay. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, this is fairly horrifying. I mean, Trump said stuff like this before, and it's just this kind of rather gross thought that Jews are are greedy, and that's how he's going to appeal to them. Um, and it's kind of ridiculous. It's fairly well known that Jews, do not, as a rule, do not vote for Republicans. Roughly one in five of us will, will do so. Right. Um, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, it, 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 it's really one of the few ethnic groups that have this pattern of fairly high incomes, because not because we are have some deep secret, but mostly because our people had the uh, dumb luck to settle in places like New York and Los Angeles a hundred years ago. So we were massive beneficiaries of the economy in those places. Uh, I also always point out to people there was free college in those places for a long time. I just have to get that point in. Um, and free public college. But... So, you know, most people, as they make more money, tend to vote Republican for the some, somewhat to the for the selfish reasons sure. Trump, you know, actually claims the Jews do, which is just sort of ironic in a terribly sick way, because Jews actually have somewhat greater concerns than simply um, the money that we all have stashed in our houses and apartments that we're not telling all of you about kidding people. And um you know, general rule of thumb is that when people start talking about nationalism and white people, as a general rule, most of us have got to have a sense we're next in line and um, tend to not vote for that or support that in any way, shape, or form. Now, of course, that doesn't mean not everybody feels that way. And, you know, there are people who support Donald Trump in the financial services industry and in some of the more religious communities just randomly um you know jews are as paul krugman put it people <laughs> you know but it, it, it's fairly horrifying and it's 
And I think what's really horrifying about it is it just goes into the sort of overall dumpster fire that is Donald Trump at yeah, this point. It's not even surprising. I mean, and the fact that in, later in the story, he goes on to, you know, call, uh, you know, he said, you're not going to vote for Pocahontas, which is Elizabeth Warren, according to him. Uh, that didn't even really get any attention. That was just a, you know, an aside in the article. Well, as I said, I mean, it's a dumpster fire. I mean, by the next day, there's seven other things to be angry about. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate dysfunctional governing style. If you've ever met, you know, you know, dealt with real, you know, troubled people um, or addicted people, you know, there's often this blizzard of lies that comes through and you're just sort of staggered and, you know, they sort of get their way in this kind of blizzard of chaos. And that's always been Trump's strategy, whether that's deliberate or whether that's just a product of his own craziness. Uh, I'll let you decide. No, I mean, it's 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 interesting. But, you know, again, you know, as I was reading through the, the whole article on this, I was going, you know, this is this is how Trump thinks. So, you know, the money thing is what what motivates him. So he po- he really cannot, I don't think, in his mind, separate, you know, Money from from you know interest. No, I mean I think what's really crazy about it is it, it's like it's that weird anti-Semitism where he actually thinks he's giving a compliment. I mean that's what gives it such a strange Trump-like <laughs> veneer. Most people when they say stuff like that are actively insulting you. In, when Trump's mind, this is actually a compliment. He's taking this stereotype, and which is clearly an anti-Semitic stereotype, and he's trying to offer it up as a compliment. So it just sort of adds to the insanity of the whole thing. Because, of course, the Trumps had greed and money and more and more money. And the greedier you are, the better you are. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, so it's all around just sort of awful. Yeah, I mean, well, this this whole thing is all around awful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just that bad. But here's the thing. I mean, there, there's still a possibility this guy wins in 2020. And I look at, you know, the most recent... Uh, poll out of South Carolina, the, the YouGov poll, that puts Biden at 40%, and you got Sanders at 14, Buttigieg at 11, and Warren at 10, and I'm going, you know, which one of them is going to going to be able to take this guy out? Because, you know, evidently, this kind of stuff doesn't matter anymore. I mean, blatant anti-Semitism doesn't matter. Blatant racism doesn't matter. It, it Evidently, breaking the law doesn't seem to matter. Um, you know, who takes him out? I have no idea at this point. I, you know, I think this is a very, you know, scattered process. And I think the I th- I think one reason the polls are as divided as they are is people are very divided about this and what the best strategy going forward is. Yeah, um I agree, but you know there are things that we do agree on. I mean, you know, healthcare being one of them. I mean, healthcare is always the, one of the number one issues. Uh, you know, jobs always one of the number one issues. And yet, this guy and this administration have done you know virtually nothing, in my view, on that. In fact, the economy is slowing. You see, our trade deficits haven't changed much. Uh, they've done nothing on infrastructure, uh, manufacturing jobs. While they're saying was you know great numbers on Friday, only because forty six thousand of those fifty four thousand were auto workers who went back to work. It's, um, I, I think it's, you know, the economy, what I always say about the economy, and I don't want to give any credit to Donald Trump here, so I'm saying that was the caveat, is compared to 2016 in many ways, it is somewhat better. Salaries are rising a little bit 
the jobs picture is somewhat better than it was. The stock market is rising. I mean, half of all people don't have money in the stock market, but half do. And I think that combination makes it harder to get him out because I do believe that most people do think economically on one base level. And it's going to be hard, it's going to make the task harder to get him out. There's no question about that, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I know. And here's my problem. I mean, the guy who's at the top, Joe Biden, with 40 percent, um, just seems to be every bit of the gaffe machine that I always thought he was. He was. Uh, and this time, not in a good way. I mean, this belief that the Republicans are going to have an epiphany and we don't want too many Democrats to win because for whatever the hell reason that was. Um, is, is, is he trying to lose? I, I don't think he thinks about it that much. I Evidently mean, I think you're not. actually giving this guy credit for forethought that he simply is not capable of. I mean, he's a creature of impulse who lives in the moment. That's the, the genius and the hell of the chaos strategy. There's no forethought whatsoever with this guy that anybody's ever been able to figure out. Yeah, but, you know, at the end of it, I get that about Trump. But what about Biden? Oh, Biden. I mean, I think Biden is, frankly, past his prime. I, I, mean, I think that's a very sad thing to say, but I think he's just not up for this. I, and I think it's clearly obvious. I think he has good days, and I think he has good weeks. But I think you see it in, when you ask a question about Hunter Biden, for instance, and he literally can't come up with an answer. And on one level, I, I get it. I wouldn't want to bash my child either. But on the other hand, you could say a hundred times over, well, what, what Hunter Biden did wasn't illegal or what the Trump kids did is worse. And both of those things would be very true. Right. But most people still understand that what Hunter Biden did was wrong. And they're not going to go for the fact of somebody trying to tell them it's not wrong. And I think somehow this has to be smoothed. Or maybe it can't be. Maybe uh, in the end he can't be a candidate because of this. So do you, you think this might be a mortal wound then? I, I don't know if it would be a mortal wound in the primary, but I think I'd be pretty concerned about it going into the general election. And I'd be concerned for two reasons. Um, first, Trump will use it shamelessly. We know that. Trump is impervious to any form of hypocrisy whatsoever. Right. I mean, it's... It's beyond Teflon. It's Teflon to the hundredth power. There is a shamelessness that allows him to get away with this. Second, I always say, you know, one of the things about the Republican and Democratic parties is that Republicans want to win and Democrats want to be right. And in this case, it turns on the Democrats, should Biden be the nominee, because by def definition, you're, you're kind of not in the right here. And again, yes, it was legal. Yes, what the Trump kids did is worse. You know, but, you know, no, Joe Biden didn't, you know, exercise any influence on behalf of his kid whatsoever. But it still looks awful. And people understand it to be awful. And, you know, it might ultimately come down to the fact it's you know, in PR, there's always this idea, you know, in crisis PR management, there's always some strategy we could give you to get out of here. Maybe there isn't sometimes. No, on this, there's not. And look, I've, I said from the very beginning, and I got some heat from, from my, my Democratic friends who were like, well, you're just beating up on Joe. I'm going, no, it's, it's, it's not forgivable. I mean, it's wrong that Hunter Biden was on this board. He has no, no business being on that board. But here's the thing, and this is where the defense is.
you know, that's our system. I, I'm, if you want to have a, a conversation about who shouldn't be on corporate boards, let's open up all the corporate boards of, of people who are there for patronage reasons or nepotism or, hey, I need my kid needs a job. And there's tons of that. The question for me is, did Joe Biden have any influence on him getting the job? And did the kid have any influence on Joe Biden in, in doing anything? And clearly the answers are both no. Right. I agree with that. I, I just think at one level, it's still not going to matter because people intuitively understand that it's wrong. And what I would say is, is I basically agree with you, right? Nepotism is horrible. People generally don't like it. I would say there's plenty of other candidates out there who don't come in with this problem. Right. And by definition, if you have to talk yourself into it, it's already a losing case. I mean, my mother once, my mother was, was a saleswoman at Macy's for many, many years, and she once gave me this valuable word, bit of advice when, when shopping that I should pay attention to more often, which is you should talk yourself out of buying something, not into it. No, it's an excellent point. And that's kind of how I feel about this. You, the minute you have to explain it, it's already lost in a way. No, which is why look, I've I've finally I've come to my position. I'm a San, I'm I'm in the Sanders camp. I've always been leaning Sanders, uh, but the presidential forum over the weekend that the Teamsters had, you know, just kind of solidified it for me. Uh, here's a guy who's, you know, I, I think his comment of look, I've walked more picket lines than basically the entire uh, presidential, you know, forum combined. Uh, to me, that did it, and I'm like, you know, this is the guy. This is the guy I want in the White House. Oh, look, my basic position is, at this point, come November, I'd vote for my dog yes. before I voted for Donald Trump. I mean, as my 16-year-old put it, I mean, you know, what would be worse, Trump or a cat giving orders swiping with its paw? And the answer <laughs> is Trump. But Yeah, the cat's not going to commit crimes. Right. Like, you know, the cat is most likely not actively malevolent. Um, some dogs might disagree with that assessment. But... <laughs> The, um, you know, the fact is, is this is a horrible situation, and that's how you have to think about it in the long run. But in the short term, in terms of the Democratic primary, I, I mean, I think it's completely fair to raise these issues. No, absolutely. And and also to, you know, to talk about, you know, the, the messaging going forward. I mean, there are things that regardless of what Joe Biden thinks, and this is another one of those moments where I go, I don't know why you said it, Joe. I don't know how it makes any sense. You know, that Republicans are going to have some grand epiphany if you get elected or that you don't want too many Democrats to win. I don't get it. But there are some things that, you know, across the aisle do work. And I think, you know, not being saddled with a lifetime of college debt, probably one of those, even though Hillary Clinton and Howard Stern did mock uh, Sanders and Warren over over free college. Right. I mean, if you want to talk about useless statements, I mean, one of the delightful things that goes on out there right now is, is there's this kind of rampant hypocrisy in the Democratic Party where when somebody on the moderate side says something attacking on the left, it's, you know, this is wisdom. And then when the left criticizes the moderates, you're not taking one for the home team. No, it's an excellent point. And it's become, it's like, it's becoming sort of disturbing, frankly. Um, you know, we know that people want to be able to attend college without gaining, without getting a lot of debt. Um, we know this. I mean, you know, there's been surveys of the messaging being done. And, you know, people ex want college to be affordable. They think the wealthy have too much money. If you want to know something that really polls quite well, go, you know, the wealth tax is up there. Um, you know, it even gets support from a lot of Republicans. It's, um, it's really astonishing what does and doesn't get support that, do that 
people generally don't think about. Um, almost everybody, you know, Republican, Democrat, Independent, thinks there should be a public option. Um, I, everybody, you know, people want to see a wealth tax. Um, the um, people want to see a, a, a major investment in infrastructure. I've been that wanting include, that for, for 15 years. You know, years. a major investment in green energy, though they don't say the you know the Green New Deal, but hey, you can call it what you want, right? Right. Um, you know, the, these are things that, you know, generally most people agree on. Most people don't want to see the poor take it on the chin either. You know, when Donald Trump does that, when he cuts SNAP benefits, this is appealing to a pretty small base. You know, what surveys find, and I should say what Rick and I are talking about is I wrote up a survey that came out, was released last week by the Center for American Progress, where they tested a lot of messaging with different groups, is that they do find a majority of Republicans agree with statements like people are poor because, you know, they don't work hard enough and they're not ambitious. But then you say something like, well, in that case, you know, should people, you know, suffer the consequences and, like, go hungry and, like, lack adequate housing? And people are like, actually, no. That's not okay. You really get a pretty small minority at that point that says yes to that. No, no, like my Tea Party dentist today, I said, well, what we need is health insurance where that has a pay or die option. Uh, if you're not rich enough to be able to pay for your health care, you just die. There's the option. And what did he say? He was mortified. He was like, are, are you kidding? I go, of course I'm kidding. But that's what that's what the Republicans are proposing. No, right, they're not. I go, yeah, by taking health care from people and not giving them any alternatives, it's basically pay or die. Exactly. And, and I think people need to be confronted with that more. And I, I really think some of this is there's this kind of lack of logical follow through for lack of a better term to describe it, where stuff gets sad and people don't think it through. It's like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, people are poor and, you know, lazy. Or, you know, yes, we, you know, shouldn't, you know, we, you know, Medicare should be protected. And people just don't think through the consequences of what they're saying. No, no, I mean, I I look at Mike Bloomberg, uh, who... (laughs) And I, I talked about this earlier, who told Gail King, uh, it, uh, talking about Warren and Sanders, it's not my fault that they didn't have the good sense to become billionaires. Um, really? Exactly. Uh, that which was another astonishing comment this week. Or uh, the one that really got me this week was the whole, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren contretemps, where he began going after her for not revealing, you know, her legal clients and how much they paid her 30 years ago. Right. And she was like, dude, you haven't revealed your bundlers. You aren't letting people into your, you know, your, into your, high, your reporters, into your high-dollar fundraisers. And by the way, who exactly were you advising at McKinsey again? You know, this guy is supposed to be a genius, and that didn't occur to him that there would be some blowback. So anyway, P.S., what happened today is he finally had to back down on all of that. Um, yeah, but here's the thing that got me is the headline I read is Elizabeth Warren made $2 million. Uh, I didn't say that it was over a 20-year period. Well, exactly. But, you know, because she ultimately revealed it. But let's see what happens when Pete Buttigieg starts revealing who he consulted for at McKinsey. There's, there's an excellent, excellent thing. But again, this is why we have these primaries and we play these games. Um, hopefully we, we don't come up with a hypocrite who's be- too badly wounded uh, in the general and end up losing to a guy who nobody cares if he's a hypocrite. Well, I think people need to remember that as much as they might like like or dislike a particular Democrat, if that person is a nominee and they don't like them, they really have to ask themselves, do they like Donald Trump more? And at the end of it, that's the, that's the big question. And that's going to be the unanswered question, and it won't be answered till next November. 
Um, and that's why I hope people are registering to vote, and I'm hoping they're paying attention, and I hope, uh, uh, well, the part of me hopes he's impeached by then, uh, and that the Republicans come to their sense and throw him out, but that's not going to happen. So come November, we'll have the chance to, to throw him out that way. We can hope, we can hope right? Um, the other thing, by the way, we should say that he said um, Saturday night while he was um, doing his um, subconscious anti-Semitic ramblings, is he also talked about he wanted to stay in office for 12 years. Yeah. I, I, which is another thing that deserves a lot more attention. I mean, it's just getting creepy and weird. No, no, look, but I've got Trump supporters telling me that. It's not just Trump saying that. There's there's like an undercurrent of in the Republican Party that's that's ready to undo that whole amendment and, and take us back to uh, you know, move, maybe moving towards a king. It's really, you know, just sort of ghastly. And you really wonder, like, what are people thinking? Why are they supporting this? Why don't they understand this? Because we don't read and we don't know the Constitution. I think of all my Tea Party people who carried around their pocket, they had the little tiny pocket constitutions that were pristine because uh, they never broke it open. It's, um, that, that would be true, right? <laughs> scary, scary stuff. Uh, anyway, Helena, I appreciate the time, the thoughts. Uh, always, I appreciate your work. Good stuff. I look forward to having you back again real soon. Okay, thanks so much. Have a good night. Thanks so much, our good friend, Helene Olin. Let's take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. Saving work in America, one show at a time. The Rick Smith Show. decade is likely to be the hottest since records began in 1850. Congratulations, you've just lived through the hottest 10 years on record. Republican Senate confirms former lobbyist as energy secretary. California bans all new fracking, for now. Plus, everyone has to do everything they can in order to make sure they are on the right side of history. Teen climate activist Greta Thunberg has a warning for politicians. You love her, don't you? I do. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I think about it all the time, Phil, and honestly, climate change is very important to me. Yeah, I know. The more climate change, the better. Am I right? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, never mind Donald Trump at NATO being asked about climate change and saying, oh, he believes in climate change because he wants clean air and clean water. He doesn't even know what climate change actually is, does he? I don't think he does. He always pivots to talking about clean air and water whenever he's asked about climate change. But, of course, he's been dismantling clean air and clean water standards since he came into office. So he doesn't know what climate change is, and he's ruining the clean air and the clean water. Exactly. All right. Well, with that out of the way... What's the good news you have for us today, Desi Doyen? Well, first, the annual United Nations Climate Summit is now underway in Madrid, Spain, where governments are trying to hammer out technical mechanisms for the historic Paris Climate Agreement to cut the global greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous man-made global warming. You mean clean air and clean water? No, climate change. Oh. 
In conjunction with the summit, a new report finds 2019 is now on track to be the second or third warmest year ever recorded and that the last decade is now all but certain to be the hottest since record-keeping began in 1850. Fantastic. That's according to the United Nations World Meteorological Organization, which found the last 10 years of global warming brought accelerating sea ice loss, record sea level rise, and more frequent devastating heat waves, driving a rise in global hunger and migration. Hoax, 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 hoax. Not a hoax. The report also found that the oceans today are 26% more acidic than in pre-industrial times, which is degrading marine ecosystems. A different study from the Global Carbon Project finds that global emissions of carbon dioxide hit another record high in 2019. But they found a silver lining. Fossil fuel emissions actually fell this year in some developed nations, including the U.S., as they transition away from coal. The report also calculates that the average American's emissions this year are more than twice what the average person in China emitted. But I thought it was China and India that was the holdup and the reason why the U.S was dropping out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Nope, it's the U.S. Oh. In Washington, the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate this week confirmed yet another lobbyist to President Trump's cabinet. Dan Brulette, former lobbyist for Ford Motor Company, takes over as Secretary of Energy, replacing Rick Perry, who is currently embroiled in the impeachment proceedings against Trump. Getting pretty swampy around there. Here's one for your climate science denier uncle. New research published this week shows that, surprise, climate computer models are correct, despite the lies told by the climate change denial industry. The first-of-its-kind systematic review of climate models dating back to the 1970s found that those models accurately predicted the actual rise in global temperatures that we are seeing today. So, the models were right, they are right, and they will continue to be right. So, my uncle is wrong? Right. Oh. Some good news. California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom has banned new fracking permits in the state. Good. But it's only temporary, pending a new scientific review. He says it's part of his long-term pledge to, quote, manage the decline of oil production in the state. And Newsom is using the power of the state purse to cut emissions by ordering California state agencies to buy their fleet cars only from manufacturers that recognize the state's authority to set higher vehicle emission standards, standards that the Trump administration is trying to revoke. Good for the governor. Finally, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg arrived in Lisbon, Spain this week after hitching a ride from the United States across the Atlantic Ocean with an Australian family on their zero-emission sailboat to attend the U.N. Climate Summit. Thunberg said her unconventional travel arrangements are intended to send a message. It is impossible to live sustainable today, and that needs to change. She also has a message for politicians around the world. I think people are underestimating the force of angry kids. (laughs) We are angry, we are frustrated, and that is because of, of a good reason. If they want us to stop being angry, then maybe they should stop making us angry. Well, that sounds like a plan. Go get them, Greta. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report.
Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, the U.S. Supreme Court today, they refused to hear an ACLU appeal on behalf of the only abortion clinic in the state of Kentucky. Uh, I remember back in 2017, Kentucky passed their heartbeat law uh, that mandates that doctors perform an ultrasound and women are forced to listen to the heartbeat. And back then I was saying this is going to, one, it's going to run up costs, and obviously it's going to to be uh, much more difficult for people to afford. And two, it's going to cause more trauma for women who are who are seeking to have abortive care. Uh, right now you have a Supreme Court that refused to take the case and without comment, and that's the part that gets me. I, why? Why did, they, why did they refuse to hear this? Uh, so as I'm reading through this, my first thought is, is, get ready. It's going to get a lot worse and fast. And I point to Ohio, uh, where House Bill 413, a 723-page abomination, uh, has caught international attention because what they want to mandate, from what I understand, and look, I'm not an OBGYN, what I understand that they are mandating um, isn't even possible. Uh, not even possible. And here to share some thoughts on on just what House Bill 413 actually entails and what it means. I've asked Ohio State Representative Tavia Golonsky to come talk with us. Representative, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you for having me. So you know, what do you think of the, the court You know, saying, you know, we're just not we're not even going to say why we're not taking this case? Well, I think that's one of the most ominous signs. The fact that they didn't say anything is because what they're saying is, here, take this fight right back to Kentucky. And then they're saying to all the other states who are ramping up the similar bills, you guys are going to be duking it out in your states too. So pulling it back to states' rights and also taking away the opportunity for anybody to come up there and pick it and for people to be, you know, angry at the highest court. And so I think I agree with you. All of this is a death march towards really controlling women 100%. No, I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, I, I, I've been talking about this issue. Now, understand, this is not my issue. It's not one of the ones that are top uh, on my priority list. I'm a labor guy. Uh, but ultimately, this is, a, this, is a, this is a working class issue. Because as I believe, and you can agree or disagree, um, women of means are always going to get what they want. This is going to mean poor women are going to die in back alleys, uh, kind of like the woman my mother knew when she was a younger woman. Um, you know, the, this is one of those issues where the working class, again, is going to be the one saddled with 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 poverty and desperation and, and all of the horrible things that we've seen in the past. Uh, it just it just it's just glaring to me in that view. And you're 100 percent correct. And once again, that upper one percent, the folks who are, are making these laws, the people who are never going to have to wonder you know, the kind that feel the same kind of desperation that a young woman, some of the girls I saw at Summit County Juvenile Court, um, they're never going to have to wonder about that because they could get access uh, to abortion and it would be safe and they could go somewhere, you know, leave the country, if you will, and go get what they need done. But you're right. It is, once again, um, you know, basically hamstringing poor women and certainly more people of color and people who are just marginalized. And, and you're right, it is the working woman's problem. Because once again, instead of giving her a full uh, spectrum of access to health care, 
you know, people are cutting in, eating into their rights. And also here in Ohio, uh, presenting experimentation on pregnant women, which I think is insane. No, it is insane, which, which brings us to this uh, this 723-page bill uh, mm-hmm. that has gained international attention because, uh, and I don't know what an, an ectopic pregnancy is. I guess it's one that's outside of the uterus. Is, is that how I understand yeah. it? Well, and again, remember, I'm not a doctor, and neither are these legislators who have proposed this. And in any event, there's I can't find one doctor who supports this. Basically, this is an encouragement for for doctors to have to experiment on pregnant women to see if they can do the following. And I'll tell you what, any woman listening to the show tonight, they know this is impossible. An ectopic pregnancy is one that happens outside the uterus and typically right on the fallopian tube. And it can't survive because it, this, this um, embryo implants there, it doesn't have any of the hormones that it needs to become a viable pregnancy. That's number one because it, doesn't, um, it, it isn't developing inside the uterus. The other thing is here it's creating a seriously life-threatening problem for the mother because as it begins to, um, to expand on that area, then it causes internal bleeding. So immediately the life of the mother is at stake. So people have, you know, people, real actual women who've gone through this procedure and had an ectopic pregnancy, have, it's, it's a life-threatening surgery. It's a life-threatening event. And they've, some of them have lost the ability to reproduce in the future or lost at least one fallopian tube or just as in the, in the very simplest have gone through a tragedy. There isn't any woman who's having an ectopic pregnancy who is like, oh, you know, well, I, I, I wouldn't want it anyway. Most people who find out in science and in biology, they were devastated with this news. And again, it created a huge health crisis for them. So... This is an outrage. It's literally not available. I've had several doctors contact me on Twitter, on Facebook, going, this is insanity. Whose idea is this? And the suggestion from the from the sponsors is, well, this can be done because we think it can be done, and therefore let's just plan it on the next pregnant woman. If I were women in Ohio right now, I would be terrified that this bill would go into effect. Yeah, and if you're if you're a woman in any state in this country right now, given the fact that our Supreme Court didn't bother to hear the Kentucky case, all of yeah. these bad little experiments that someone, some guy dreamt up, because this is a this is a man dreaming this up. No woman would do this. At least I don't think no. so. Well, and here's the thing. Let's be truthful. Here in Ohio, unfortunately, the majority is subject to groupthink, and so I think without even really thinking any of this through, they took a bill from Alice, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. There we go. They took it and they decided to file it because there's a frenzy of wanting to control women and make sure that women give birth. And don't forget, our state, the majority is not at all interested in what happens to you after you're born because we have one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. So they don't focus on that. They're not doing anything to really help in that area but they're sure filing a bunch of bills that take up all of our time and interest. And to me, that's a sad statement. You're not interested in children once they're here and in poverty and so on, but you sure are interested in making sure that people are required to give birth. And even still, let's experiment on them when it's not even an actual viable birth. Well, they're just poor women. Yeah. I mean, does it really matter? That's what they're thinking. Yeah, what are you going to do, pray over them when they're going through this ectopic pregnancy? That doesn't actually work in actual, um, you know, practice, 
you know, God helps those who help themselves, the person raised in the Catholic Church also. I can quote scripture, and he doesn't expect us to not try to help ourselves. That's what doctors are for. Yeah, you know, but I, I look at this, and again, you know, the pro-birth folks, as you point out, mm-hmm. they're really not w- willing to help once once the child pops out. Uh, no. you, you're on yeah. your own, brother. But, you know, internally, right. you know, they, they really care. Yeah. Well, they say they do, and then they spend all of our legislative time, because let's focus on what we have right now. What what I'm doing right now in the legislation is, in you know, in the legislature is I've got bills to lower prescription jugs, again, for actual adults. I've got a, a foster care bill. We're here in, in Ohio, probably just like Kentucky, we have a serious opioid crisis, which has inundated our foster care families. I know that because I was a juvenile court magistrate for over 14 years. So really, for four years since, well, almost three years now since I left that job, we the foster care families can't even get, to, they can't even keep children. It, uh, they can't even accept as many children as need homes because of the opioid crisis, right? So instead of the legislature focusing on that, which that bill is over in the Senate right now, nope, they put that on the back burner and decided to do experimentation on pregnant women first. What kind of insanity is that? I guess it does show the priorities. I mean, it is an election year, and these Mm -hmm. these kind of bills do rally their base. um, Because, you you know, and I said this is this, you know, and I saw this today, this will... This will help Donald Trump's reelection. This will help Republicans' reelection because this is what the evangelical base wants. You know, never mind grab her by the you know what. Never mind the you know, the fifteen thousand lies. Never mind all the things that Trump has done that is you know anti-Christian. This is what they really want, and it's 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 not even about. I don't even believe it's about the children. I believe it's it about control. I believe they want you know um, you know gays back in the closet, you know, blacks in the fields, and women back in the kitchen. And, and, right. and to anything that gets them to that place, you know, they're going to fight for. Yes. And as an actual Christian, I really resent and, and don't like for that name to be thrown about for people who reject those who are in prison, who reject um, children in foster care who need help, and who reject any of the actual, actual teachings of Christ. So I'm constantly reminding them that, you know, Christ actually would want us to take in children and to actually care for, you know, the, the least of theirs, which, you know, for us in Ohio means the poor people, people struck by the opioid crisis, and uh, those people who can't afford their prescriptions. And to me, you know, that that's all we ever heard Christ talk about. We never heard him at all talk at all about, you know, what happens in utero. And so I wish people would focus on not controlling women and their bodies while also not passing any laws to restrict men and their seed that they plant. So are you on one of those 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 bills, too? Because I know there have been a couple that have, have gotten some attention. Uh, I know there's been the Viagra bills and there's been yeah. the, the masturbation bills. I know there have been those things. Are you on board with those? Well, you know, truthfully, our partners have asked us not to go forward with bills like that because what they're saying is, Let's agree. We don't believe in restrictions on any person's body, whether it's male or female. But what I've always wondered openly and loudly is this. I know for a fact that there's no pregnant woman walking around who did that all by herself. That's true. There is sperm involved. And another thing I know is that if men were more careful with their sperm, we wouldn't have any of these problems. Because what you're talking about is you're talking about unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. And that takes us back to birth control. Why wouldn't you, on the other hand, you know, hand out readily birth control because it once again it really, really isn't about helping people plan their families. 
it's about controlling women. Absolutely. That's what I see. And what I find interesting is the people who are the most vehemently opposed to abortion are the ones mm-hmm. who are also the abstinence-only folks, which seems kind of ridiculous. I mean, yep. if you're against abortion, and I'm, and and I, personally, I am as well. Yeah. Um, but you, wouldn't you think that you go, okay, the best way to not have abortions is mm-hmm. to not get pregnant? And that we, we exactly. are fortunate to live at a time in history where it's possible to prevent that. Doesn't that make some yeah. bit of sense? Perfect sense, right? But, and that shows you how it isn't about that, because if you really, if people, if they really actually cared about, um, about like you said, abortion and preventing all abortion, you would prevent all unplanned pregnancy and unwanted pregnancies ahead of time with all of the unique tools that we have available based on technology. I hear zero push to do that. In fact, I hear abstinence only, which, which we know isn't actually a viable plan for healthy uh, humans. Healthy humans are made to reproduce. And so where I don't agree with abortion, I just don't I – I know for a fact the state should not be involved in this at all. And that's how I feel as a legislator. So as a legislator, I feel it's absolutely wrong that the state would be restricting anybody from doing anything with their own bodies. And that's, that's going to always be a problem. And so I just feel like we are doing this work when we really should be doing other work, and it's very upsetting to me. Now, ultimately, you know, there's there's part of me that there's a couple of things that that jump out legislatively. If, if we're going to be mm-hmm. if we're going to take things to extremes, uh, if, yeah. if you're someone who's against abortion, maybe you should you have to open up your home to a foster child. Um, yes. you, that oh, seems to be. Uh, oh, how about adoption? You should it, it should be mandatory. As soon as you make a comment about <laughs> what you don't want other people to do. Right. How many kids have you taken in this year? Right. And then it should be a revolving door of. You taking in all of the multiples of children who are waiting to be adopted. Right here in Summit County, there are thousands. And, and that's because, and, and again, all over the state, we have many children waiting for a home. And in fact, since all, all life matters, why don't you take in the 17-year-olds with lots of problems? No, and see, I think right. that should be, it should be mandated. Because we shouldn't, we shouldn't ever need foster care again with this philosophy of, here, let me hold your hands and hold your legs closed and keep you from doing anything you might want to do. All the while, you know, true interest in children means all the children. You know, we we can't even fund education right here in Ohio. We're 22 years out of compliance with our own Supreme Court about how to fund education. So these people can't continue to lie to me that they care about kids. These are actual kids that aren't even getting a decent education. You don't really care about them. What it is is you want to mandate birth. You want to make sure that if I'm from Ohio, I will be required to carry my brother's child to term because remember when when they passed those laws they didn't make any exceptions for rape or incest here in ohio right now you know i look at this and again this is another one of those moments where you know i I keep hearing you know there uh, a number of commentators talk about uh how you know especially in minority communities abortion is very Mm -hmm. high and the Mm -hmm. number that they throw around is some you know 40 million abortions have happened in minority communities since roe Mm -hmm. And I go back to, I go, well, you know, look at how poorly we've done at taking care of the kids who are in foster care. Uh, the school lunch programs that you see that are are, are being, uh, you know, just uh, decimated. You, you go, yep. you know, what would we do with another 40 million mouths that we're already not feeding the ones that we have? And, and I, I know that's kind of, you know, di- you know a, a dismal look at things. But if we're not taking care of the people that we already have, add another large amount to that because you forced people into it. And how much worse does it get? Well, but the real tragedy is knowing 
that we can actually prevent these births right. and doing nothing about, or excuse me, prevent these pregnancies and doing nothing about that. And then when people get into a desperate situation, telling them what they must do as a result. And that's wrong. So what kind of evil exists that you are making pl- making plans to make sure that if someone becomes pregnant, they can't make any choices for themselves. But before that, you don't offer them, and I believe it should be without charge, you don't offer them the right types of contraceptives to make sure that they don't get in that situation. That's exactly what we're doing here in Ohio. Do you know that we are the one state in the union that refuses health education standards? I have a bill right now that I believe we should teach kids about health. Isn't that a convenient hand-in-hand? We don't have any health education standards in Ohio. In fact, there is a current law that prevents us from even passing them that I've, that I've legislated to repeal. And they are trying to prevent us from having hearings on that. You want to know why? Because once again, they believe our children will get, will get actual sex, sex education training. And then they might start thinking for themselves. Yeah. That's horrible. What kind of evil is that? No, I mean, you know, I went to high school in Ohio, and, um, yep. you know, we got none of that. <laughs> yep. uh, in fact, you know, it was one of those things where I, I tell my kids, you know, the uh, when I went to high school, the older that you got, the less chance you got pregnant. Eighth graders, you know, when I was in when I was in school, the, the eighth grade was combined with the high school. And the eighth graders were always pregnant more than the ninth graders, and the ninth graders more than the tenth graders. And by the time you were a senior, you kind of figured it out, and, and maybe you didn't get pregnant. It was it was a weird kind of dynamic where I, I said, you know, well, shouldn't we be teaching kids younger about this? Just kind of a thought. Well, and who are we not to give them that information? See, that's another thing that, that's tragic is why would we profess to once again care about children but not give them all the information they need? Well, isn't the so, argument, Tavia, the argument that, yeah. that that's the parent's job? I mean, because, you know, mm-hmm. we've talked to our kids, um, yeah. you know, but, you know, isn't that the argument, though, that you know, the school shouldn't be involved in this? It's the parent's job. Well, and I, I hear that as a good argument, but those same people that are saying that are also not doing a very good job of teaching their children. In other words, just like I'm not an expert in biology, just like I'm not an expert in chemistry, I don't profess to be teaching my children about those specific matters. Sure, I might have some information and I can help them with their homework, but I'm not the expert. And isn't that what we send them to school for? What this really is, is once again, it's a patriarchal approach because again, I mean, you and I didn't really touch on it, but if we really wanted to prevent unplanned and unwanted pregnancies, we'd get to boys. And this and is see, this nobody's is, doing that. No, you're right. And and this is one of the um, I shouldn't say sore spot for me. Uh, this is mm-hmm. it's a personal thing for me because uh, my okay. father walked out before I was even born, never paid oh. a dime of child support. Uh, oh. So my mother was, you know, was had me, you know, 17 years old, uh, you know, no child support. You know, we wow. I, you know, I, we lived in a housing project there on the west side of Cleveland and life for mm-hmm. her was a struggle. Because yeah. the system was not on her side. And this is where I said, exactly. this is where I want to see laws that say, look, and, and back to your point of, of bringing the men in and, and you know, yep. consequences to the, to the little swimmers. Uh, I think there should have to be some t- type of legislation where you made it, you're going to have to pay for it. Exactly. And what I used to say as a child support magistrate, you know, in, in juvenile court and before that in domestic relations, what I used to say is I'd like to go back to the moment of conception and start charging you for what this really cost. That's what I would say to people who acted like they didn't want to take responsibility. You know, again, 
two people chose, but only one person in front of me, typically the pregnant woman, was going to face the consequences. And I think that's not fair because there are no babies created without sperm yet. None. Right. And so while we keep that in mind, you know, if again, this is this is designed to be, you know, punish, to punish women and to shame women because again, there's been no punishment and no shaming of men. And I'm not saying that that's an, that's an antidote, but that just shows you what the real focus is. The real focus is shaming and punishing women. And also, other women want to do that to other women because it's like, well, you got in trouble. But really, if we went and we went carefully back and focused on, we all know. Again, many of us know how this works. There, are, there are no babies without sperm. And so, who's the original perpetrator? I submit to you, the farmer who plants his seed. There you go. <laughs> so, last hey? question I've got for you. The, you know, this <laughs> this monstrosity of a 723-page bill, yeah. uh, House Bill 413. What are the chances of this actually getting through and becoming law? Well. Here's another little scary thing. Because of a little thing called gerrymandering, we, the Democrats, are in the super minority. We're the people who do not believe the state should be involved in these decision-making, and we're in the super minority. So they have the votes right now to, to have this thing sailing through. So unless everybody within the hearing of my voice and beyond gets on the phone and tells people Ohio doesn't want to go backwards, Ohio's heading straight backwards on a fast train. Scary, scary stuff. Representative Galonsky, I appreciate you taking time. As this continues, I'd love to have you come back and share some more of the gory, horrible details of the destruction of women's rights. I'd be glad to do it anytime. Good stuff. Thanks so much. Our good friend, Representative Tavia Galonsky, uh, representative from Ohio's 35th uh, House District. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me, rick at ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1953. That was the day that Ralph Cordiner, president of General Electric, issued his Cordiner Doctrine. It was the height of McCarthyism and the second Red Scare. The House Un-American Activities Committee persisted in its witch hunting of trade unionists, labor militants, and alleged communists. It targeted many of the unions purged from the CIO in 1949. The United Electrical Workers was one of those unions. The UE had organized the electrical manufacturing industry, including General Electric. Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy and HUAC each began investigating UE Local 301 at the General Electric plant in Schenectady, New York. GE didn't like the militancy of the UE or the bad publicity McCarthy generated about the company harboring subversives. So President Cordiner issued a memo which stated that any employee called before a Senate or legislative committee hearing who invoked the Fifth Amendment in response to inquiries regarding alleged communist ties shall be terminated. When McCarthy came to Albany, New York to hold hearings on alleged subversive activities three months later, hundreds of UE members packed the room, booing and jeering the senator and cheering the defendants. One African-American worker demanded, why don't you investigate subversion by GE of the Jim Crow system, of the profits taken from the sweat of my people? McCarthy abruptly ended the hearings, but 28 UE members would be fired at General Electric. Other electrical manufacturers like Westinghouse soon followed suit. It was a devastating blow to the union and to the fired members who had helped build the UE from the ground up. 
But the union persevered and remains a powerful representative force for workers in the industry today. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Radio of, for, and by We the Working People. The Rick Smith Show. So to highlight what uh, Tavia was talking about is, you know, last week we talked about Donald Trump kicking some 700,000 people off of food stamps. 68% of those being booted are family, are family with children. Uh, 33% of them are families who are elderly or disabled and 44% are working families. And the reality is, is you're talking about this is disgraceful. Uh, and, and again, you know, I've always said that if, if you wanted to make abortion illegal and you wanted to stop it, maybe there's a, a, an area to discuss it. And that's is you're going to make sure that uh, the kids are going to get the health care they need. They're going to be fed. They're going to get the educational opportunities that they need. And they're going to get proper, proper, proper love, affection, sheltering, all of that. Not just warehoused in an institution and at 18 kicked to the street. Um, you know, that's that's not sorry. Uh, that's that's not helpful. I mean, if you really wanted to make sure that uh, it stopped. There are a lot of things we could be doing. Education, obviously, being front and foremost, one of the most important parts. And it's interesting to me, as I've said, the very the very people who are the pro-birth folks, uh, who you know, who are going to do the most deceitful, deceptive things uh, to make sure that people have children, are going to be the first ones to point their finger and say that you're a bad parent if you can't afford to put food on the table, or or heaven forbid. The lunch card doesn't have enough money. And then your child is embarrassed because up, up, up. The system is going to literally take food out of their hands and throw it away. It's always curious to me. Now, look, as someone who is not thrilled with the idea of abortion, um, contraception is the best way to go. I mean, the only sex education I ever got, uh, the school didn't do it. Um, I, I remember talking in, in health class at, you know, 730 in the morning with the gym teacher, uh, you know, at the front of the classroom, red faced, you know, talking about sperm and egg and no idea what he's talking about because he never talked about anything else. It was all very antiseptic. It was all very sterile. Um, and the only, the only thing I got from from family members was my grandfather saying, just make sure you put a hat on your Jimmy. That was it. That was the extent of the education that you got. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. Uh, but I find it also interesting that the very people, again, who are saying we can't do it are the very people who are making the situation worse. And I point to this most recent story about um, the Catholic Church and their ban on contraception. Because, look, I've said from the very beginning uh, that it's not just about Roe, it's about Griswold. And I've had a bunch of people say, well, what do you mean about Griswold? Well, Griswold was the case uh, that, you know, back way back in the 60s, where they made it legal for married couples to have contraception to practice family planning. It is the what gave people the ability to to use contraception. Um, I've always said that's the that's the real gold. That's the gold at the end of the rainbow. Rose one thing, but taking that away, you know, much, much bigger. And I look at the Catholic Church and the fact that 
Um, there was just a story recently, because understand the Catholic Church controls a massive size of our healthcare system. Uh, there's one provider that I think that the, they pointed out that there's like, they, they own like 2,800 facilities. Um, it's it, it just, a, at least they said at least one in six uh, healthcare things is controlled for by the Catholic Church. And that the doctors in that church have to lie about why they're prescribing contraception. They can't even say what it's for. That, to my, my friends, is a big, big problem. And another reason why I don't think uh, that the, the churches should be in, med- in, in, in medical care. Just my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. You can email me, rick at the If you missed any of today's program, you can download the podcast there at the website or get the app on your smartphone. Take the program on the go wherever you go. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Lots to get to. Don't want to miss it. We'll see you back here tomorrow. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick Rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.